What's up, Seek Outside podcast listeners? Hope y'all are having a great week. Um, we got week two of podcast trivia coming towards you. We got Hal Herring on the podcast today. We're going to be talking a lot about public lands, the history of public lands. This was a very intriguing episode. I learned a lot. Um, Hal's an awesome, awesome guest. We, we always love having him on the podcast here. Um, so, podcast trivia. For those who don't know, basically what we do is I'm going to select a question that is pertaining to this podcast with Hal, and I am going to post that question on our Facebook group, Seek Outside Adventures, uh, and that will be tomorrow, uh, which is Thursday, January 20th at 3 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. I'm going to post that question in the Facebook group. Whoever answers that question first and correctly uh, will win what we're giving away this week. What we're giving away this week is an awesome 6300 custom uh, pack, uh, Seek Outside pack. Uh, This is going to be the pack bag only. It doesn't include frame, uh, harness, or hip belt. Uh, Just the pack bag, but it's really cool. It's got the fully separating side zipper. It's got the two tall zippered side pockets that are in first light cipher camo pattern, uh, which is something that we no longer sell. It's also got a top lid that is going to be coming with uh, first light cipher camo pattern. It's got the internal load shelf, so it's a really awesome pack. So make sure sign into the, the Facebook group, Seek Outside Adventures, tomorrow, January 20th, 3 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Try to win this pack. Another quick announcement for you. We will be at Western Hunt Conservation Expo in Salt Lake City, February 10th through 13th. So if you are going to that, make sure you come by our booth, uh, which is, I believe it's 2943-48. is going to be our booth number. We're going to be right across from Sportsman's Warehouse. Uh, they got a pretty big booth. We're kind of in the corner there, but um, it, I... Without giving away too much, I think you'll be able to see us from a long ways away. So come check us out. I'm going to be there. The whole team's going to be there. We're going to be um, doing some giveaways and, um, you know, some just some really cool stuff. And we'd love to talk to all you guys. So enjoy the podcast today, and we will see you there. Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Outside Podcast. Yeah, there's there's no question to know. David Lean. And you were the uh, head chapter leader of Colorado VHA? Clay Hayes. Uh, well, I got stalked by a mountain lion, uh, made a fishing pole out of a lodgepole pine. Falconry and bird dogs, can they coexist? Oh man, and do they. Shitty weather and lots of bears. That's what this podcast is about. You made a point when you get up in those high basins and the thunderstorms come rolling in. That's how I got into trail running. Some people are just wired that way. Don't, yeah, don't don't get me busted on any of the spots. We don't have enough of them. Oh yeah, no, no, we'll we'll cut okay. those out. Alright. Um. So I I've uh. As to what I've been doing for the last year and a quarter, last year and a half, I've been lost in this research for this public lands book. Um, and I, as I got, realized how long I'm, I've been doing this, I took off on another a job to kind of recharge the finances. And um, that was running crew for the Mule Deer Foundation. 
Um, we're planting these big range fires in southern Idaho. We've been doing that for six years. Um, but uh, this year was our biggest year ever. I think we planted 196,000 sage and bitter brush plants. Um, three different, three different kind of uh, expeditions or missions. Is that is that all just to improve winter range, shoulder season range? It is. Um, it's um, it, it it's a multiple. There's it's Idaho Fish and Game, uh, Bureau of Land Management, and Mule Deer Foundation working together. Um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, we, uh, we have finally started getting capacity to where we have an, uh, more seedlings available for us to plant. And the penitentiaries, uh, the women's penitentiary and the other prisons in Idaho are growing sage. Um, and they're doing a really good job at it. The men's prison this year had the best plants, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. And, um, a couple of other Lucky Peak Nursery, which is a fed federal U.S. Forest Service nursery, they they really turned up. They cranked out the quality this year, um, and uh, we had the capacity to put in one hundred ninety six thousand. Um, availability of plants has been hard in the past years, uh, but uh, so here's here's in a nutshell what we're doing. So these are big range fires, the cheatgrass and other invasive species. Medusa head, rush skeleton weed, but mostly cheatgrass, which dates back to overgrazing in the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know. And then, so the cheatgrass is called a ladder fuel. And sagebrush could burn on like a 10 to 50 year uh, cycle for thousands of years, more than likely, you know. But since the introduction of this cheatgrass, um, the cheatgrass is just tall enough and dense enough to create a flammable mat that when it goes, it, it incinerates the sage and takes it off the landscape, incinerates the bitter brush, um, incinerates the, we, we, had, we planted one place in Colorado that had huge service berry, which was something I'd never seen before. And um, right out there in the, you know, in the, in the, in the big deserty stuff. So, uh, what we're trying to do is to reestablish the sagebrush there and to knock back the cheatgrass. And, and really, it's goes, the, the winter range thing is the primary deal because the deer still come there by the thousands. But fawn mortality is huge because there's not any the perennial uh, annual grasses which people used to think were so great for cattle grazing or sheep grazing or all. They just don't, they don't support an ecosystem like that whatsoever. Hmm. Um, the, the ground, the, the wind blows so hard that it blows all the dirt away. And they do this thing called pedestaling where the grass is up like six inches in the air. Sometimes there's no dirt around it. And one of the things that happens there is the soil becomes hydrophobic or impermeable to moisture. And so you don't get any aquifer recharge. You lose all your springs. Um, the the lower level stuff. We're in a bunch of basalt country there, and uh, the the water just goes right down. They can't get in there anymore. So you have kind of an ecological freefall. And amongst that, part of that sim a, a problem with that is that the deer fawn mortality goes way up because there's nothing there. The sagebrush and bitterbrush is what they need. Um, and that's what's been incinerated. We get a lot of comeback of, of interesting plants come back in there. 
including including the cheat and the Medusa head. But without the sage, the thing is in ecological and and wildlife biology freefall. So, like, how many acres is is that? You said a hundred and any idea? Oh well, I, th- I think the last fire we worked on a soda fire was nine hundred thousand. Wow. Um, we were we were on the Idaho side of two hundred eighty five thousand acres. Down towards Owyhee, it just got bigger and bigger. Um, tech, we started at Tex Creek Wildlife Management Area, which was an incredible place. Like you can, it's in like backside of the Tetons, and um, that was not as big. But the the thing about Tex Creek is it's kind of an island. That Snake River Plain stuff is so highly developed for agriculture because it's such rich land. Yeah, that um, these spots are um. They're increasingly critical in a, in a in an intensively used landscape. So, could you explain just uh, when you said that the sagebrush can burn on a ten to fifty year cycle? What what does that mean? Does that mean like when these fires come through before the cheat grass was here that they would burn just a little bit, but there wasn't enough uh, underneath to really to really singe it to where they're not going to grow back? Or could you ex- dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, and that's a that's a great point. It's like that that's hard for people to get their mind around because um they never saw this ecosystem before the cheatgrass, you know. Um so yeah, probably, you know, for the last 1000 years, um big sagebrush steppe country has been burned by lightning or whatever, you know, probably a lot of Native American burning too back in the day. Um to and it and it and it actually is such a hell it's a, it's a low intensity very low fire that goes around and it actually increases the uh it it helps the forbs and the native grasses come back every year which is one reason the native americans almost certainly burned a lot of it you know um but when with the arrival of cheatgrass and now medusa head that cheatgrass mat it burns so hot that it literally torches all of the sagebrush. And I don't, you know, it, it's, it's this world, it's a world question, like where human beings exist and, and what does it all mean? <laughs> like whether this cheatgrass is kind of like a super organism, you know, like, like it, it prepares its own place in fact, in a way it crowds everything else out. Um, and the other thing is, is it's, it's, it's good for grazing, in May or so, you can get some cattle and stuff on it. But when it once it goes hard and dries out, uh, the the capacity of that range to support cattle, wildlife, anything goes so it's it's just almost it's just almost nothing. And then and then of course the cheatgrass will burn every year because it dries on the stem, and then lightning, cigarettes, campfires, what a chain. I mean, where I live, uh. A dude took off with a chain hanging down from his trailer and set like 50 fires in in the first 24, 21 miles. <laughs> oh, oh, so uh, so so the cheat grass basically keeps everything else from thriving. Yep. Would that be? And and when everything else doesn't thrive, see these are these systems worked. It's it's another it's another thing. Like what does it all mean? Because like with big sage, you get all of this snow retention. So these are big, really windy places. And the big sage holds the snowpack in place. 
so provide somewhat of a shade for it. And the snowpack slowly settles into the earth as, as April comes in or late March or you get these Chinook winds, you know. And it's, it's really a, a, a fantastic system. You can't believe that it, how, how well it worked. And then this, there's huge springs like we're working in the Bennett Hills for, for some couple, couple long seasons. And there's like plunge pools and, and there's creeks back in those weird canyons. Um, this was a system that was almost, um, I mean, I mean, I don't know the Gaia hypothesis and all that stuff, you know, but this was a system that really, really worked. And it did that for millennia. So what's the, what's like, are there any solutions with getting rid of this cheat grass? I mean, is it, there are, is it something that if you were to go burn large swaths of area and you were to replant the sagebrush, um, would that be a solution to, to get rid of some of the sagebrush or what are the, no, it, it, one of the, one of the things that everybody's working on now is what are the chemical and, and I know these have big problems <laughs> as well, but what are the chemical application solutions to landscape scale treat cheatgrass treatment? Um, something that won't nuke everything else, you know? Um, and I have a podcast coming up with Jesse Shallow, who's the Mule Deer Foundation biologist. And Jesse is working with a lot of folks on the chemical part of this, in addition to working on us with us on the plants. Um, and I, there, there has to be some chemical application in all of this for sure, especially given that that the cheatgrass is now being taken pushed out by Medusa head which is an even more intensely um, uh, kind of monolithic species. Yeah, these invasive species are just, um, <clears throat> we could probably do a whole podcast or, or several just on the different invasive species. Like you have Russian olive and yep. other stuff that all just hamper like a functioning ecosystem. Yeah, and what's fascinating about it is that um, these things, it, it's like with Russian knapweed in the, um, in the bitterroots, uh, which just like overwhelmed the bitterroot, even in the 14 years I lived there. Um, that what's, You almost never get one of these species that increases the carrying capacity of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a good one doesn't come in. I can't think of a single one. Um, well, it's like, yeah. like we got, I'm down here in Georgia right now, and we got kudzu. Which is, yeah. I mean, you just are driving down the road and, you know, it's all these awesome eastern deciduous forests. And then you'll go to a patch and it's just kudzu and every single thing, especially in the fall here, whenever all those leaves have died, it just looks so ugly and it, it chokes everything that's down there. You know, you'll notice in those areas there's no squirrels, there's no birds. I mean, sometimes there's cardinals and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty brutal. I mean... It, it's tough. What do we do? <laughs> well, and we did that one intentionally, right, to address the incredible erosion um, events of the 1930s. Oh, really? Kudzu? We, yeah, we brought kudzu in from, I think, from Korea. Okay. And they told everybody that you're going to be able to cut it as, you can't actually cut it as forage. <laughs> it was going to be, it was going to be the savior. Um, and then it, it got here. Well, we put it here. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, Self-induced. We're dealing with a lot of stuff in Alabama. On, on, we're wanting to log this piece of ground there of pines. I'm so old that I actually helped plant these pines that we want to cut. And we have um, privet. Okay. It's Japanese privet. 
that completely takes over wherever you log. And, and I don't know what the solution to that one is yet. Man. So you've been working on um, this public lands book, right? Yeah. Let's uh, move over to kind of an overview. Like you've mentioned when we were scheduling this, that you're going to go to D.C. to interview the former Secretary of the Interior. Is that part of the public lands book? Yeah, Bruce Babbitt, who um, who uh, really pioneered. This is in the 90s. Um, I'm going to put this pin up because I'll start clicking it. Uh, uh, but uh, Bruce Babbitt established the Upper Missouri Breaks National Monument here in Montana, which was probably the best, probably the best archery elk hunting in the world, maybe now. Um, and the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument's down in Utah. And the, what's significant about um, Secretary Babbitt's work is these are the first national monuments that weren't going to be managed by the Park Service. They were going to be managed by the Bureau of Land Management with a multiple-use ethic, which means that we can hunt and camp and wander around without a whole lot of regulation um, and still protect the antiquities and still protect the, the uh, natural landscapes. So he actually, people don't understand this, and, and everybody was so furious about the national monuments. Oh, God, oh, no. And what they didn't understand was the Bureau of Land Management was going to manage these things and in a, it was going to keep us on the landscape while protecting the antiquities and the other values. I'm a big fan of that model. Yeah. It's not that I, yeah, I know it's not that I don't love the national parks. I do, but I can't take my dogs to Glacier Park, you know, and, um, I have, I, I have, it's it's there's too many people there so it's too regulated and so i love this idea of protected landscapes that maintain a level of individual liberty for those of us who own them yeah. i agree i spent a lot of time in escalante area yeah oh man <laughs> well and it's i don't know if this is directly i don't know what the regulations are on some of these you know escalante and all that stuff but it seems like you know the national park or national monument designation has kind of uh has kind of been at least recently negative for some of these national parks and stuff and i know that you know like um there's been some theories that have been put out there recently about you know turning some of these national parks into more wilderness areas to where you can't drive through them you can hunt them you can still access them but you know it it's that seems to be like wilderness areas seem to be the model for if you want to keep a place wild that's how you do it so i, I don't know is that different uh like what are the different regulations between like something managed by blm and something managed by the national park service like night and day yeah yeah the the park service goes back to like you know 1872 with yellowstone uh -huh. and it and it although that evolved it, it evolved as a, it's a mandate of keeping it as natural as possible um and still having access to the public you know but it's a really it's a really pretty rigid mandate okay um whereas national monuments managed by the blm are not rigid really very much at all. They just protect the antiquities. All of that so that the monuments are established under the, the Antiquities Act, um, which was written by John F. Lacey. Um, and was it 1904, Kevin? I don't know. You're the expert. <laughs> yeah, I think it's 1904. But um, John F. Lacey, if, if anybody listened to this, just, you could just Google him up and then spend the rest of your life marveling at, at how 
power, what an impact this one man had. Um, he started as a some kind of a private in the Union Army in 1861, was captured, paroled, captured by the Confederates, paroled, went back into the war and spent the whole time and ended up as a brevet general. He saw incredible, like, carnage and then came back to Iowa and became the congressman and pretty much served the United States of America like nobody's business for the rest of his life. I mean, and and how this guy, I mean, I would love to read a big biography of him, and I never have, um, and I'm not going to write that biography, but, uh, I mean, he, so he was approached by these archaeologists in the Southwest. They came, uh, a guy came all the way to D.C., and he said, man, we're losing the archaeological record of tens of thousands of years that is part of America's heritage, the Native American Puebloan peoples, this huge, like Chaco Canyon, all that. And um, John F. Lacey got on a train, and I, it took him like six, seven weeks. And he went all through the Southwest um, with the Hewitts and the other archaeologists who were working there um, uh, and and came back and wrote the Lacey Act, and wrote the Antiquities Act. Okay. Um <laughs> I mean, this is like this is like big America, like you were talking about American exceptionalism. I don't know if that exists, but there were certainly exceptional people doing exceptional things that gave us the country we live in today. Oh, for sure. I mean, if he's if he's just those two acts alone sound like that, you know, set the stage for what we're enjoying nowadays. So, yeah, yeah it sounds like it sounds like a very exceptional, exceptional human there. Um, and he came in at a time like with Teddy Roosevelt and everybody where he was older than them, okay. of course, by lots. But um, he came in at a time where they were looking for that kind of leadership. He was, he was the guy to have it for him, huh? He was the guy. To, he was the guy. Nice. I mean, what a history. So <clears throat> what part of public lands does your uh, book focus on? Well, what I, what I got caught up in during the pandemic because I wasn't traveling much, um, I got caught up in a history, and I'm really kind of I, I got lost in that, and it I'm hoping it works. I've got a couple of readers on it. I'm pretty worried about it because it kind of carries us from settlement and pilgrims <laughs> to to now to I'm at, I'm in I'm at Ronald Reagan now. Um, it's it's been rough. Um, I ain't gonna lie about the troubles I've had with it struggling with it and i've got a floor full of books here that i can't even i have to go back to it's like a the research library of like 200 books um but the joyous part part of the book i've just gotten started on which is the called the journeys and i'm starting in wyoming on the shoshone national forest which was america's first national forest and i'm gonna go around the country which i've already done some of the trips and i'm gonna end up hopefully back here at home. Um, and I, I can profile national forests and their history and show us a little bit of how we got what we got, you know? That, um, that seems like it would almost be too hard to cover everything. I mean... I agree. <laughs> uh, so, so, like, are, are, there any, um, are there any specific avenues that you are super fascinated about going on this trip that you didn't know about beforehand? 
Always. Um, every one of them's got something like that. That I, call, I called Kevin when I was down in Escalante last May. We almost connected, but it's a big place. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, all of that, the, the fight over public lands and the, the history of Utah, which is the epicenter of the privatization movement, you know, of public lands, which goes back to the struggles with the, with the Latter-day Saints and in, in American history, right? Since the, the Mormon Wars of 1838 and the Mormon Wars of 1858, where they were in opposition to the federal government. Um, and the, that, that's part of the story of public lands. That, that's why Utah is the epicenter of the privatization movement. Why we have the American Lands Council there and stuff like that. Um, that's, that's an unknown story to most people outside the West. I don't know that story. So basically, yeah. like, because the Mormons obviously settled in Salt Lake City area there. And, and that was probably, I guess, if that was 1838, then the whole public land movement was a little bit later than that. So the, the government came into contact with them around, what, like 1900s or something? Well, yeah, they there was actually a Mormon war in 1858 okay. under Buchanan, under President Buchanan, um, and that that followed the the really bad. I mean, there's no doubt. Um, don't get me wrong. The uh, the Latter Day Saints have had a very powerful. Uh, they they've been pushed pushed and persecuted and fought. You know, in the United States. Um, and they have prevailed by seeking out places where um, they could build their own civilization, you know, in away from places that everybody else wanted, like the Great Basin. Um, I have great admiration for, for what they accomplished. Um, but in 1858, under Buchanan, there was, a, there was a full-scale military campaign to put down what they considered an insurrection in Utah. And um, that campaign came to a sputtering halt because nobody really wanted to fight. There was some bad stuff happened, Mountain Meadows Massacre, et cetera. Um, but that, it came to a sputtering halt because nobody really wanted to fight. They, you know, it was like they just didn't want to go to war against each other out there in Utah. And then, of course, my people in Alabama and everybody decided to fire on Fort Sumter, um, which gave the army a little bit uh more pressing concerns back in the southeast so uh, <laughs> so i'm gonna probably open up a can of worms here right okay. you're a big public lands fan and advocate right. you've done a lot of work ryan's a big fan and advocate i'm a big fan and advocate what can we do to take people that don't really spend a lot of time on public lands maybe they don't use it doesn't matter they they go to their house they go to their job they go to walmart or target or whatever and and they really aren't into that kind of stuff maybe what can you do to get them to be more pro public land when they don't necessarily have a use the 640 million acres of America's public lands are the essence of what we hold in common. It's the ultimate commons. And we're going to be able to use that land to build ecological resilience in the face of climate change and population growth. Um, we're going to protect watersheds, which, which is why we have the public lands in the first place, was simply watershed protection in the arid west. So 62% of all water available for people in the arid west originates on public land. 
Okay, so look, um, let, let's take the person in Phoenix, right? <clears throat> that they play golf. They live in a, a condo or a house in dry, arid climate. Um, they go to their, their store or whatever, but they, they don't go out hike. They don't hunt. They don't do anything on public lands. But Phoenix gets a lot of water, say, from the Colorado or Gila or things like that that originate in a public land based environment where the headwaters of it are still much more closer to being intact. So yep. so their golf game and their watering of their yard, they should have some appreciation for the public lands just based on that. That, yes. And um, I would like people to appreciate the fact that although Canada has crown lands, Australia has crown lands, um, nobody in the world has anything like what we got with this. And... And I can promise you that it's not an accident, which some politicians have been saying for the lab, that are anti-public lands have been saying it's not an accident. But it was in re, it, where you are, around in Georgia, um, the aftermath that leading up to the Dust Bowl years, like thirty four, nineteen thirty four, mm-hmm. those lands were so destroyed. And um, I go into this in the book, but it. Um, they were so destroyed by ill-considered agriculture. And, okay, so when we just had horses and you had a team of, like, 15 horses to, to pull a combine or whatever, you needed what? What's their fuel? It's grass. Yep, oats. And so we had denuded, like, the erosion in Georgia and Alabama and some Mississippi was so incredible. There were, like, 60, 70-foot gullies all over the place. A lot of that land was just abandoned. Really? The Conecuh National Forest was abandoned in Alabama. The Bankhead was abandoned. Um, these were abandoned lands. And um, the, the, in the West, the impact of sheep herding and tie hacking, a railroad requires like 70,000 ties a mile if you keep, if you keep uh, replacing the ties. So we had basically cut the West off for railroad ties, which opened the West. It was, I mean, we wanted the railroads. Um, and then we had grazed it flat. And these places were no longer working in any kind of ecological way. And the water was coming off during snowmelt, carrying all the dirt with it, filling up the creeks. This happened in New Hampshire first. I mean, this is old story. But it happened in the East first. But um, there's literally legacy sediment in the Hudson River that people go aground on now that came off of those mountains when they were absolutely logged off, burned, and then grazed flat. Well, we have some of the, uh, it's apparent here that we have the spring, in the spring our mountains can turn red from overgrazing in Utah and Arizona. Yeah. Where, dust. what? Dust, right? Yeah, yeah, dust. And then it accelerates wow. the snow melt, um, which, brings with it a bunch of other issues, right? That we don't have the snowmelt lasting, say, until late June or close to the 4th of July. Sometimes, soon as soon as that dust gets on the mountains, you can see how much quicker they melt. Yeah. It kind of seems like a common theme now with not just public lands, but a lot of things that uh, right now we are figuring out um, the results of you know, things that were done in haste back in, you know, the 1800s, 1900s, as just thinking, 
of now you know we got to make sure to feed all these cattle because we got to feed all these people in this city that not many things were thought out uh what do you think that we can do now to plan for the future of our public lands um so that we're not having to deal with like are there any unforeseen uh uh, uh, consequences that we're not thinking of now of of as a result of things that we're doing on public lands now i'm sure there's a million of them yeah, that we that will come come into uh, will be revealed as we go. Um, one of the things, though, and I, I want to tie it in again, the, the existence of the public lands is an experiment and it's based on the failures of civilizations all the way back to to the Middle East. And so is the U.S. Constitution. Like like these things are not disparate by any means. The U.S. Constitution is, is was written by a, a bunch of people, men, who were learned in the failures of past civilizations, the, the, the failures of despotism, of kleptocracy, of monarchy, all that. And um, the, the Constitution is, is an exquisite document to limit the power of government while still having a government that can be, if people work on it, can be representative of the people. So I don't separate these two things out at all anymore. The, the, the establishment of the United States of America as one of the most liberal and egalitarian democratic republics in the history of the world um, is not at all unrelated to what Teddy Roosevelt and, and George Bird Grinnell and John F. Lacey and them did at the end of what we call the Gilded Age, 1890s when it truly seemed like America was sliding off the hill and going into a failed, um, it would be oligarchy, plutocracy, whatever. And and the ecological disasters of the 1890s and 1900s were what people were studying, and those came to a fruition in the 30s. Like, they, did, they didn't fix them in 1904 or nothing like that, right? This, this You don't fix it right away. So after the Dust Bowl, though, we got an enormous another um, another bunch of public lands that were destroyed, and the federal government then used those resources to restore them as much as possible. So the public lands and the Constitution are both institutions based on deep knowledge of the failures of past civilizations. Now, we're still failing, but as the saying goes, when I start writing every day, I'm going to fail better today than I did yesterday. So you mentioned you mentioned earlier that our lands, our public lands, are different than, say, Canada's public lands. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, um, <laughs> the American public lands are, are. A friend of mine, a guy I used to rock climb with from Canada, he said, "Man, they don't let you rabble rouse up there like they do here." And he said, "Wait, they make a decision to log something, it gets logged, you know." They make a decision to to drill Pincher Creek north on the Alberta front. It gets drilled, um, and in America, in the well, not in the United States, south of the border, um, we just fight and argue over everything. We never ain't nobody ever going to shut up. People don't, and thank God for it, right? But it's like it's like, oh no, you know, we're gonna we're going to fix this and you're not going to do that. And we're going to do this. And everybody is always, the rabble has the power. And, and perhaps that's less true now than it used to be. And it's not a lot of fun, right? But I I say this over and over is 
We don't want to avoid conflict about the management of public lands. I would like for us to all settle on the idea that the public lands are a great idea, that we keep them and have them. Because I think the preponderance of the evidence is there. Okay? That's the only reason I'm saying this. I, and I, I, the preponderance of the evidence is that, that these are a national wealth that we all hold in common. But I, I, I welcome conflict over their management. No, that's the difference between the crown lands and the American U.S. public lands. Now, you mentioned uh, the Reagan years, that things kind yeah. of maybe seem to start to go off the rails while we're out right. skiing and having a good time. Can you elaborate on what exactly kind of happened at that time? I can, and it, it's uh, it's unusual. It's it's something that I didn't, from my research, that I didn't expect. Um, so, uh, 1976 we passed a series from, from like 68. Also, I, I want to tie this into the current um, um, work on social justice. The 1964 Wilderness Act was passed the same year as the Civil Rights Act. Okay, these things are not unrelated either. Right, this, we were trying to build a country that we could be more proud of. Um, and this is, this is just, I mean, the, the evidence is... is overwhelming on this this idea and so we're coming off of a ab, the absolute chaos of the 60s the assassinations you're coming off the cold war you're coming off the freaking mutually assured destruction where we all got enough bombs to like turn the planet into sand um and part of that actually led to the to the creation of the wilderness act by the way is people were so kind of horrified at at how we were going they were like, wouldn't be nice if we had some places that were not subject to the fallibility of every man's, you know, whim, given the fact that we'd come up with mutually assured destruction as our solution to the Cold War. <laughs> uh, so, so I want to I want to keep going. So how that um how this plays out was in the seventies we regulated the heck out of damn near everything. People were tired of the Cuyahoga River catching on fire. There was this thing called the Versicol Chemical Company who had sold this fire retardant contaminated animal feed all over the country. It was this huge disaster that apparently people don't remember now. Um, there was just one disaster after another. The smog in L.A. Um, and people were fed up with it and they wanted an activist federal government because the state governments were not acting. And there, there's a lot to unpack here that we could talk about for the rest of our lives, about the Tenth Amendment and the rights of the states and all that, which I'm a supporter of. I'm a fairly conservative person. But the states weren't doing it. <laughs> and so the federal government enacted under Nixon, the most unlikely environmentalist ever, um, and they enacted enormous amounts of... of um, just look at the, the stuff that happened in the 60s. OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Hazard Act, right? Where people were falling into pits because people said, well, go over there, that ladder will work. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's sulfuric acid, but you're going to be okay. I'm paying you three bucks an hour. Uh, so, <laughs> so the, the federal government took a fantastically active role in trying and effectively fixing stuff. Clean Water Act 1972, Clean Air Act 1972. Um, and people supported this big time. 
Um, that's what Nixon was told when he signed the Clean Water Act, which he said, I just don't think that this is that important. McNamara told him, he said, the people want this. You better do it. You can give them this. So, as there always is after 1976, there became, there, there got to, and most important for the public lands, we're not going to talk about this very long, was FLIPMA, which is Federal Land Policy Management Act. And that put the bill made the Bureau of Land Management susceptible to multiple use, which included wildlife and all these other things. All of a sudden, the BLM, which had just been a grazing organization agency, was responsible for like protecting the sage grouse. Okay, so you can see how this is going. People are going to get now the toes are being stepped on in Utah and Nevada uh, of people who emphatically were not used to having their toes stepped on when it came to grazing public lands. It was a blueprint for conflict. And again, conflict is good. So FLIPMA was passed in 1976. That's the biggest part of this. The big controversies we have over public land management now are rooted in FLIPMA 1976, and it was good. We needed controversy. We don't need to people just to graze everything down to dust and year after year or cut all the timber down, you know? Um, it's so, but, but there was a backlash that started with the activist federal government of the 1970s. And that came to fruition with the election of Ronald Reagan. As Edward Abbey said in the, those early days of the 80s, he said, oh, the empire is striking back. and indeed they were and one of the things happened then was the establishment of all these think tanks such as the heritage foundation um american legislative exchange council uh all of these think tanks were established at that time by say uh i think it was adolf coors had spent a lot of money the Koch brothers spent a lot of money um and they established these uh, think tanks that then produced studies that showed that all this environmental protection was causing trouble and taking away people's freedoms. And if you look at who funded these, it's mostly, you know, big oil and gas or um, libertarian like the Koch brothers. Um, and I understand they have a point too. I'm, I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying it wasn't, it wasn't for more environmental protection or public lands. And that has soaked into the Reagan revolution where he appointed James Watt, who was in Mountain States Legal Foundation, was an avowed opponent of the notion of public lands and any and environmental protection of any sort, really. Um, and so you got the backlash. The 70s were the time of activist federal government that people wanted to protect things. The 80s showed what Randy Newberg always said, conservation is simply not convenient. You have to choose it. You do. You do. 100%. So from there, now we're 40 years past there, 35 years. Just just your gut feeling, the support of public lands. Is it a 50-50, 60-40, 70-30, 40-60? Where are we at? If you were to just put your finger. I don't know. I, th- I think too many people still don't know what is at stake. 
to make a judgment as to who support it's that's kind of like asking do I support um some type of technology that I don't know how it works um I don't think that Americans have figured out what's at stake yet with the public lands debate and part of this there's 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 something happened though during the 90s until the Bundys kind of became a media star and this would be Ammon Bundy and that crew with the Malheur Refuge and all an anti-public lands movement. People didn't had forgotten that there was an anti-public lands movement. But we had the Sagebrush Rebellion in the 80s, which Ronald Reagan said he was a part of. You remember he said, I'm a Sagebrush Rebel too. And then James Watt actually drafted a plan to transfer hundreds of thousands of acres to the states and the cattlemen who were in the first Sage Rush Rebellion looked at the economics of what the states were going to do to them. And then Watt also proposed to outright sell public lands that were being used under the BLM. And the cattlemen realized that they were about to lose all of their cheap grazing around their, uh, their own properties. And so the first Sage Rush Rebellion actually died because it had achieved politically what it said it wanted. <laughs> Um, so I think that the 90s were kind of anti-public lands to the max. And here's here's an interesting thing. In the in the night in at one point the anti-public lands movie were sagebrush rebels who were out in Nevada, say. But in the 90s and, we saw sorry, I, environmentalists. Go let ahead. me just clarify one thing. So the sagebrush re- rebellion was basically a lot of people who had uh, interests in cattle or or big oil and grass kind of rejecting the notion of of public lands kind of kind of similar to the Bundy brothers yeah okay but the first age rush rebellion was it was a it was a uh, a backlash against the flip mode 1976 where you now you had to worry about sage grouse now you had to ask people how much how many cows do you have on there and is it impacting the watershed um uh, what's the native grass here that we're trying to protect? You know, they they hadn't they hadn't had to deal with that before, um, and so that first sagebrush rebellion was very much an anti BLM, anti you know, uh, um, putting pri- changing of priorities. Okay, okay, anti multi use. I should be able to do whatever I want. Yeah. Yeah. I should be able to do whatever I want, as I have for the last, since 1934 with the Taylor Grazing Act. I've, I've been able to do pretty much what I wanted, and now I can't. You're impacting my freedom. Yep. Good. No, it, not it, a problem I, I with don't that. Blame these, it's, it's really tough because I don't blame people in on a ranch in Nevada running a 60,000-acre public lease who doesn't want to be bothered by... A, a range biologist asking you how many tortoises have you seen and, and we're going to move your cows. I, I think the tortoise should be protected, but I understand the anger people have. I really do. Right. I mean, I, I don't like being you, Kevin, you're not talking. We don't like being messed with either, you know? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't like being messed with. Um, the thing is when what you do is directly impacting other people and maybe possibly greater needs for society. And then you're bringing this up, uh, some of this up in the cattle grazing, which is a whole other topic on its own. I've talked to people that um, are quite knowledgeable that don't think cattle should be grazed on public lands, right? They believe that it's a very small percentage 
I think the stats I saw, and maybe you could correct me because you spend more time, obviously, on this and are far better informed. I mostly pay some attention when I'm not trying to think about gear and things and business things like that. But what percentage of cattle in the U.S. are actually grazed on public land at this moment? And would that percentage of cattle really even be detectable in the in the greater in the greater good for the whole U.S. Now, my personal opinion, and I don't want to get any ranchers mad at me. I'd love to see more bison on public land. I know that they those don't coexist. Well, okay, so the number I can't remember if it was sixteen thousand grazing permittees um, in the U.S. About the number of cows run on public land is pretty small. So. One of the things, though, that I want to tell you, say, though, right here is I'm convinced that there are places where grazing is totally compatible with public land management. And there are places where it probably is not. Right. And we are grazing those places now. But um, beyond this, you've got to be careful of, a, of, of shooting for a utopia um, and which has a bad track record of genocide and whatnot. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, the greater good and all, also, Teddy Roosevelt said, unless the people who live adjacent to these public lands support their continued existence, they're not going to be around. So there are some even ecological sacrifices or sacrifices of the so-called greater good that I think can be made or should will be made no matter what um, so that there can be some public lands ranching. Uh, it, it do, I, don't, I don't think, <laughs> my personal view is that that shouldn't be like thrown at, that baby shouldn't be thrown out with that bath water and further diminish like rural America and, and um, say cowboy culture and ranching culture, which uh, in many ways I find to be extremely positive um, as a part of America. And uh, I was in Jordan Valley, Oregon, recently in Owyhee, and uh, it was a Halloween party and whatnot. And um, everybody had come from miles and miles around to go to this Halloween party, you know. And I, I've just been in the West now for the majority of my life, in the rural West. And uh, I find that I, I, I don't think the federal government should destroy that particular part of our country. No, there's part of what I um, personally would like to see, right? Like I would like to see bison roaming, but I also, I live in a place where ranching meets the mountains itself, you know, and I I do appreciate that lifestyle. Uh, I do appreciate a lot of the stuff that they, they do some stuff on public lands that, that is positive. Right. Uh, right. So there, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of good out of it. Right. I wish yep. there were was at some level we could have a few more Henry Mountains. So yep. so so you could have some places where you could have bison existing or something like that, where where it wasn't necessarily uh, a certain industry that was very against that concept. Own public lands. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. And that, I mean, we've, they fought over the bison restoration here in Montana 
you know, endlessly. Um, and uh, I think that that conflict is not going to stop. Um, Bison may end up showing up more as a uh, in in the market, and so you you it, there's sort of a there's sort of a market evolution here too as as cattle prices are um <laughs> they're so they're so badly manipulated by the larger business larger packing industry mm-hmm. that that they they have literally in dis- destroyed like ranching families in the marginal country in the West, you know? Um, and I, I would like to see people address that. I, I, we are getting better uh, local processing and slaughter facilities in the wake of the pandemic when the supply chains broke. And I think that that's over, overall, that's very positive. Um, it's a big, uh, it's a big issue that in, in public lands management, um, but I can tell you that in places there it, it's compatible with public lands management, and in places it's not. And what what helps make that compatibility or that decision? Is it the type of terrain, or yeah, terrain? Is- and I, I I would say a history of bison as well. Um, and we've we've lost it. There's a lawsuit right now on the national grasslands, which um I would recommend to people an, an older book by Francis Mole M O U L on the on how we got the national grasslands. And um that's a really fascinating story. They're managed usually by the Forest Service, um, which is unusual because this is very much grassland. Um, but there's a lawsuit down there now on Thunder Basin about this too much overgrazing. It's it's just it's it's a single use landscape when it shouldn't be more multi-use and more ecologically uh, oriented management. Now, that's what the lawsuit claims. I haven't been there. Now you wrote an article um, and clarify me if I'm if I'm off base on this because might. But I seem to remember you wrote an article. I believe it was for High Country News in which you talked about I think all the federal the federal government using a lot of illegal labor for support of the public lands. That seems to be very counterintuitive to what we actually want. I mean, let's take what's going on in our current um, climate of build back better. It seems that those jobs should be American jobs, not trying to be entirely a, a nativist or or we need to do everything ourselves. But that is our public lands, uh, and and we need we want to get more blue collar people decent jobs or employment. It, se- it seems like that would be a positive to have locals working those jobs instead of illegal immigrants from another country. So um, I'll, I'll qualify. So that was a story I did. It, it was a labor of love. Um, it came from, I, I, I came west toting the hoedad. Um, I was a tree planter in Alabama in the 80s. And uh, I came west, I was a planter and a forestry worker here. Um, <clears throat> so what happened in the 90s was the Forest Service budgets were very low. They were Congress was not funding the Forest Service. And in the 80s, Ronald Reagan, again, had in pretty much, they had mandated USDA, which runs the Forest Service, had mandated that they start privatizing the work done by the Forest Service. So you had less Forest Service employees and more contractors. Um, I have been the beneficiary of those plans as a subcontractor and contractor on public lands for 28 years. However, the downside of that was 
the budgets were low for getting, say, timber thinning done or tree planting. And there was kind of a Wild West deal with labor. Um, when I was working there in 1992, I was the only non-Spanish speaker. I, I do speak Spanish. But I was the only person not from Mexico or Central America on the crew. Um, and that actually evolved. That got so bad. The use of illegal labor on public lands for, to, to accomplish the tree planting, thinning, et cetera, fire lines, it got so bad that it did sort of break down and was replaced with the H-2B visa deal. So um, that there's very few opportunities on public lands to thin timber or plant trees or do a lot of these other jobs for the local native-born person, no matter what ethnicity they are. You know, a lot of these immigrants from, from south of the border are now naturalized citizens, right? And they're not doing this work either. Um, because the the visa crews, as I call them, can do it so much cheaper than what you would have to pay a local in order for him to keep a truck on the road and get to work. Um, that has not been positive in any way. I mean, look look at it. You, you, I mean, we've starved. We don't value labor anymore, you know. And and you can go into Superior, Montana, and ninety seven percent of Mineral County or ninety three percent of Mineral County is is federal public lands, and you can't buy a job. And when you go when you go down to the store, you pass a motel that that is a not a good looking motel. And in there are the visa crews who can be deported at any moment, so they can't really negotiate for better wages. Um, it's just not going to work. And the people in Darby, Montana, and the Bitterroot, and the people in Superior, Montana, and people in Nevada, rural Nevada, I mean, we need to get Americans back to work on American public lands for the kind of wages that they can afford to have a truck and pay rent if needed. So what's the solution there? I mean, is it just kind of getting rid of that, that visa deal and addressing the visa deal? We're always going to need it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a, I'm, I'm not advocating for one, one, one size fits all solutions. We're going to need that for a while. And, uh, I would say that the idea is to get people back to work on, I, my my long term vision is for Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management to have more employees, not less, mm -hmm. and to have a kind of you could do a CCC type Youth Corps, AmeriCorps type deal to train people in these jobs and show them what's possible. Um, some of them might end up they like might like just be a a, a really good tree planter, right, or a good t a good chainsaw guy, a sawyer. Um, but who knows, three out of 10 of them might figure out hydrology, geomorphology, uh, chemical application for invasive weeds. I mean, we are not doing this right now. Like we are not, we have this, this fantastic opportunity and we're not doing it. It kind of blows my mind. We're like, we're, we're, we're bringing in desperate guys from Guatemala and I'm not saying those guys don't don't need a job. I mean, I think there's a place for the the visa worker, um, but we are we are shutting the local guys out of the employment that could actually not only just pay the rent and put money back into Chalice, Idaho. Um, it it could give people opportunities to have much better lives 
and also to start building this ecological restoration economy, which is going to bring us through to the, to the coming climate change, we're going to have to figure this stuff out. And, and these, these, these brain, this brain trust of our youth in rural America, it's, go, it's, just, being, it's just being squandered. Being wasted. So yeah. what do you think is the biggest uh, challenge that public lands are going to be facing here? What's the biggest threat? Um, that people are going to be so distracted by the conflict over their management that somebody like these, some of these global billionaires uh, will step in and start offering to buy them uh, and settle the conflict. Um, when, you, when you look at what the Wilkes brothers bought in Montana and the Missouri breaks, which uh, is a big controversy here, um, and I can't remember how many acres it is, but it's most of Fergus County. It's, it's a most of Fergus County. Is this a recent thing um, that just happened? Over the last eight, nine years. Okay. Ten years. Um, it's such a huge uh, expanse of country vault that it blocks a lot of public lands. That's, that's been one of the access issues to public lands. But they bought some of the most austere country in the state. This is the Missouri breaks, like where people, they couldn't, it was so hard to make a living there. It's like uh, eight cows to a section to 640 acres. I mean, hardly anybody could make a living there, but the Wilkes brothers bought it. If you were to compare that land that they paid and bought to some of that stuff down around Kevin's place that is so luxurious, Aspen's, Tumbling Waters, Creeks, um, you can see that there is a market for all of the public lands. Maybe, maybe some of Nevada wouldn't, wouldn't sell. <laughs> uh, but if you could imagine, uh, Ryan, what part of Georgia are you in? Well, right now I'm just, uh, I live up in Colorado, but right now I am northern, northwest Georgia, uh, Rome, Georgia. Yeah, okay. So north of you is like Cohutta Wilderness. Yep. Um, I mean, if you could imagine what people would, on a global market, would do to get the Jacks River. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, it's down here, it's different too because I mean, there's already compared to the West, there's such a lack of of public land access down here. People are not as in tune with it and people don't use the public land as much. So, therefore, that land, the public land that we do still have down here, is way more susceptible to, you know people going and buying it up just because it's not used as much right and and so one of the things that happened um kevin you and i've talked about this a lot it's like people have kind of been taught to hate the federal government i mean mean, it's bizarre to me like like i just i'm I'm not i mean i don't want to be messed with (laughs) and i believe that a limited government is is the american way you know um, limited government intrusion into our daily lives, and the government doesn't do the things that we can do for ourselves. You know, and all all of that conservative ideas, which I find very they're, they're my ideas. Uh, but people have literally been taught to hate their own government, and that government manages the public lands. So for many people, they say if the feds are doing it, I'm against it. And meanwhile, they're coming out of the the scapegoat wilderness with the, all their pack animals hunting elk in a way that nobody on the rest of this entire planet can do. 
I've never been able to understand this, Ryan. I, I've, I've worked on this for, I was in a bar drinking in Salmon, Idaho. We had a, we had a contract to, to girdle trees that were uh, infected with, with mistletoe up in the North Fork of Idaho. And I'm, it's one o'clock in the morning, everybody's drinking. And this guy just says, you know, he hates the Forest Service. He hates the, the United States government. He hates this. He hates that. And I knew him. And he lived in a trailer house. And he had like an old truck and a four-wheeler. And he was obsessed with hunting. And I was like, he didn't, he didn't own any land. And I said, where, where would you go? What would you do? Where would you ride your four-wheeler? Where would you shoot your rifle? Where would you hunt these mule deer that you, we've been talking about for an hour? And, you know, he had no answer to that. And, and that, and unfortunately, that is so widespread. And, and I'm not, these people are not any dumber than I am. They've simply bought into a narrative that because I've spent my whole life hunting public lands and now two-thirds of my life and working as a forestry contractor, and seeing the Forest Service and BLM up close and knowing that mostly that's pretty damn good people working pretty hard to do damn good things, right? I just don't share that. I don't have, that narrative is false. Mm -hmm. Well, you did a podcast a while back with, um, I forget his name, but he was like an undercover um, wildlife yeah, guy. Yeah, 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 exactly. And a lot of uh, the content of that podcast happened in that country. And I, I, I thought it was pretty funny to the levels that you would have to, that he had to go through. And also the level of hate that there was for him. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we talk about on that podcast, like, what is it that pe the disconnect, like, between people who, like, they hate the game warden, they hate the Forest Service, like, you know, but, like, without those, those institutions, it kind of comes back to this current state we are in the United States of America, where we seem to, both left and right, seems to hate the institutions which laid the golden egg. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it. it's kind of, a, you know, a paradigm that's been happening recently is just hate the government, but people don't know, like, what they're talking about. They don't realize that, it, like, both my brother and his girlfriend work for um they do contract work for the government doing studies they're both biologists my dad was a biologist for a little bit he did he ended up being a teacher but it, like i've met so many biologists and people that work for the forest service and people that work for blm just through all my travels i such nice people such nice people and i think i think a lot of these people that are saying this it's like the idea of hating the government rather than hating these people because i mean i just i can't see why that is but i think that's a, a paradigm that needs to be shifted and i think it's just out of ignorance you know a lot of people aren't like us and especially you how i mean you know so much so much about public lands i i know minimal but i i feel like i have a a great respect for public lands and and you know the game warden i'll always stop or you know try to chat with him because I, I do respect what they do, and I think a lot of the people that I know do that as well, but there's definitely still that portion of the population out there that they just hate anything that's going to come along that's has anything to do with authoritarianism, you know? So Yeah, a lot of, pe a lot of people just, 
a lot of people just hate for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so a lot of this is painted a, a real fuzzy picture. What is going on? What's happening that's really positive in the public land realm? So much. Um, it's like, like I wish people would, would look at some of this watershed management, some of these, these restoration projects like we're doing with the Bureau of Land Management in Southern Idaho. Um, I mean, I think we're on the, I think we can be, should we choose it, on the cusp of a kind of renaissance in public lands management, which involves uh, American workers, American expertise, in pursuit of um, these resilient ecosystems. And um, I really do. I, I'm convinced of that. So um, as far as hunters... We can choose. We have to choose it. So as far as hunters and recreationalists, I can say the public lands, at least the last couple of years, probably the last five or six, are busier yep. than than I've ever seen them. In fact, they're, they're busy enough that I'm... Somewhat like, hey, uh, don't share photos on Instagram and tag it and tag responsibly and things like that as well. Little places that I thought were off off the radar that people wouldn't come to. You might see 30 cars at that trailhead. We recently had Dylan from Eat Wild and on our podcast, and he's also a manages maybe seven provincial parks up in Canada, and he said that one of them went from like 30 users a day to 3,000, one trailhead. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's overuse is going to be a problem. Um, what we're going to have to navigate there is overregulation in response to overuse, which would cause people to, to then hate the, the public lands. And I mean, I've already seen, I've followed this, Kevin, you and I talked about this. It was awful during the pandemic where so many people had obviously never used the public lands or tossed, throwing the toilet paper, the baby diapers are getting air mailed over, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and that's a problem that I've seen in the South growing up, you know, where any public space was was overused like that. Um, but my my hope here is that through education, that that new overcrowd, that crowd is going to be the energy that keeps these lands in public hands in the future. Those are the folks that are going to understand. This is happening down where my nephew lives now in George Washington National Forest. They have these deer camps with like 20, 30 people in them um, partying. And they do, they hunt too, though, you know. But the the upside of that, I would call it the beauty of that, is people out enjoying public lands and realizing what they got. No. The downside of that is they're, they're having a huge impact, right? Now, hunters... And I don't mean to be starting fights, picking sides, right? Uh, hunters for the last nearly 100 years have been involved in con- conservation, whether, they, whether they've wanted to or not. Right. But, but, but they have provided a lot of funds to conservation, and there have been a lot of groups that have helped move things forward. Mule Deer Foundation, Elk Foundation, all these things. Recreationalists don't seem to have the same skin in the game 
And I'm not picking one side or the other. I've had this conversation with several people. And I've seen some well-noted recreationists like Forrest McCarthy write blog posts saying that, hey man, I'm seeing everyone skinning up this mountain with at least $2,000 worth of ski gear. Can't they pay a little bit of an excise tax? And you have, and I've done a little bit of research into that myself, and the Outdoor Industry Council says, well, we shouldn't have to because almost everything we make is, comes from Asia, and so they have the right to tariff it coming in and then use those funds how they want. That, to me, seems like doubling down on a little bit of a bad idea. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> um, so, and I've also talked to people that have been, that have been, that's pretty grim, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've also talked to people that have been in the hunting industry that are like, fuck them. I don't want the recreationalists to have input. I want, I want only the hunters driving the conversation. Right. What, where do you think all this should go? Should the rec people have some input or should hunters be like, fuck them, get your own group? Or, yeah. Um, I think the hunters are making a big mistake there because those groups are coming whether they like it or not. Um, I, that This came up so long ago in a story I did in Idaho. Um, it was early wolf restoration stuff. And uh, they said, I, I don't want them to pay. That We were talking about predator stamps, right? This is a whole other con- concept. But I was a big proponent um, of this predator stamp where people who love predators could uh but don't hunt could contribute to biology studies and and management stuff um by buying a stamp like a duck stamp i mean you could there's no such thing really so you could see how far my advocacy went but uh people were saying hey i don't want those clowns at the table with us i don't want this money and i said well you're making a big mistake because they're going to come to the table anyway and you might as well have through through litigation, right? Mm-hmm. They might as well have some skin in the game. You may as well invite um, them for dinner, and uh... yeah, yeah. And and that. So I would ask your opinion, Kevin. Uh, remember the old backpack tax, Kara? Um, all that stuff. The, the idea of a backpack tax. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's so, the would fourth. You support that. I would. Yeah. Uh, I I think that. Um... They're going to come regardless. I, I make gear in the United States. I make gear that we are about a 70 to 30 hunting. About 30% of our purchases are more by recreationalists because we do make really good stuff that, that works in both arenas. Uh, but I would support it. I mean, I, I'm just like, why not? I, I think that, OI, that OAI, Outdoor Industry Association, comment on it that we shouldn't because we make everything in asia and you get a chance to tariff i think that's just doubling down on on a bet yeah double double negative two negatives don't make a positive yeah exactly exactly so i mean y'all are unique in that you're making yours you know a lot of your manufacturing is here yeah and we've also always been a little more of a reach across the aisle type uh that we think our gear is fantastic for rec purposes you could you could make an argument that our divide is 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 better than any sub three pound pack on the market period 
regardless of whatever you do with it, whether it's pack rafting, hunting. Um, same with some of our tents. I think you could make argument that uh, the Olus and Silex and all the way up to the Cimarron are fantastic tents, even in the rec, rec world. Uh, you know, that they, they, they do both ends well. And yes, they're, they're built sturdy enough to, you know, take the beating of shoulder seasons and haul big loads and everything. Uh, I didn't mean this to sound like a seek outside advertisement. You know, now a word from our sponsors. Probably going to chime in that, that, that we just use those packs to pack those 80 pound quarters. And then I have personally watched the simmer on, uh, I had a V two five old North Face on that Owyhee job, and it was a serious win. But I have seen that Cimarron stand up under those same this kind of wind we have here. <laughs> it's it's the real wind. Yeah, you're in, you're in a special wind environment there. Yeah, we have a special wind environment. But but um, I, and so to get away from the product endorsement, the um, the the, the one of the arguments was that um with say donations or, or percentages, you know, from gear, those, those percentages could be targeted by the manufacturer to causes that they want. Right. And, and you don't just give it to the big, bad federal government who then like could give it to anybody, you know, right. However, I, I, I don't buy that one anymore because we're all citizens of the United States of America and we have a government. And it's supposed to be, it's, it, if we work on it, it's of the people, by the people, for the people. And I pay taxes already for a lot of stuff I don't like. Oh, ditto. And, and we pay taxes and we donate to a lot of different um, con- conversation, conservation organi- yep. organizations. It's not just hunting stuff. Um, right. They have to be hunting friendly yep. or otherwise we won't. But... For instance, the Wilderness Society, you know, we donate to them and do work with them on occasion. Uh, places, uh, Trout Unlimited, we've done work with them as well. It doesn't necessarily say hunting in it um, right. or some sort of big game animal. So we do a lot in, in that regard, and we're members of 2% for conservation. That's yep. a starting point, but that's elective. Right. That's elective. I've had people advise me that have said, Fuck doing anything with conservation. Just sell a bunch of gear and put it all in your pocket. And I'm right. like, no, I'm going to do what I feel is right. And that's a that's an ethical choice. I mean, and I'm not going to push that on anybody else. But right. a tax structure actually does allow those people who go screw everybody. I'm going to do whatever I want. Well, they got. I mean, look at Pittman Robertson, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Pittman Robertson got to be one of the best ideas, 1934, that anybody ever had anywhere. The, the game range here, the, the reason we don't feed elk in Montana, the reason we have grizz and wolverines and wolves and plenty of elk, is basically based on these game ranges that uh, protected winter range. That's the first purchase of Pittman Robertson. I mean, I, I mean, you can't, the, the success of Pittman Robertson is, it's surreal. Well, I don't know. well, and the funny part is that a lot of the wreck people, they they love to watch big game, big sure. animals. That they just don't necessarily want to pull the trigger and stick them in the freezer, right. but 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 they do participate in the the watching part. 
And 11 months out of the year, so do me and you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing I always say to people about these, when this subject is brought up is, look, I mean, there's so many taxes that you have to pay regardless that go to whatever somebody else wants them to go to. This is a chance that you have complete control over, you know, for a fact, if, if this act were to be structured, structured like the Pittman Robertson act, it would be going directly to what you want it to go to. And I mean, right. you know, I have no problem paying 10, 11% or whatever, um, you know, a few times a year to be able to hunt more. Uh, you know, I would, I would just always bring that up to people that have that, you know. Yeah. So, so let's I move. I, would, I, didn't, I actually think Pittman Robertson kind of is the argument yeah. for this. Yeah. So, it's so freaking successful. I, I agree. Let's move off to a slightly different, like we got into my company, mm-hmm. into our dedication to conservation. What about, you've done numerous interviews with Chenard. That's mm-hmm. a company that has, although they ruffle some feathers when they get into talking about public lands, that's yep. been a company that has always, even from rock climbing on, been very much into the con- and conservation. And this is, this is Yvonne Chenard of Patagonia, just for anybody yep. listening. Sorry. Yeah. Didn't want yeah, to yeah. So, so tell me about your interviews and what you've learned from Yvonne Chenard. Well, Chenard, he, Yvonne didn't own a tent until he was after he was 40 years old. So he's one of the few people that I know. Well, he's, he's one of the least materialist people that I know. Um, and it's hard to say, like, He's such a, uh, I mean, his record as a mountaineer and alpinist is so kind of unfathomable, really, like huge, huge first ascents. And uh, and then for, for that person to then have developed this com- company is pretty astounding, really. You know what I mean? Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, have you ever seen that Fred Becky movie, The Dirtbag? Mm-hmm. Where he, Becky, Becky was just, he. I'm not gonna say he's just a climber. He's one of the great first ascensionists of America, you know. But he didn't, he had nothing. I mean, he had nothing at all. He had borrowed borrowed you know bumming rides to go climbing when he was in his 60s and 70s, and somehow Chenard and Doug Tompkins at North Face and Royal Robbins, um, they they accomplished both things, which was success in a in a business sense and a life of adventure and um one of my early editors uh told me that if a person starts out with a few million dollars and has quite a bit that person may or may not be a business genius you know but a person who starts out with damn near nothing and has a million dollars is a person you should invite for a cup of coffee and see what they do um and one of the things with Chenard was his mind is on these big they're into regenerative agriculture they're they're right now is is the bison thing um with wild uh wild idea with dan o'brien and wild idea and patagonia is they're into regenerative agriculture the bison the public lands um it's hard to under it's hard to overestimate the importance of that uh 
economic engine churning inside the United States and 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 then throwing out all these sparks into all these other positive places. Um, is does that answer your question? It, it does a little bit, um, but I'm I'm going to guess that you did a fair amount of research before your mm-hmm. first podcast or interview with him. Yeah. And I'm also going to guess that you learned some things about or from him that kind of surprised you. Like I, I remember I, I was at the BHA, Rondi, where you did an interview live podcast with him. Yeah. Um, got a little bit of dog barking here. Um, and I was surprised that he said that he uh, – he fished one year with only one fly. Yep. Changed sizes, but it was just creating more of a challenge of presenting that fly or what you could catch with that fly. Yeah, he sent me some of those. Um, and um, he just, he only fishes Tenkara now. Um, I think, well, one of the things that I was, that was surprising to me is that this person who is so non-materialist developed this empire. Um. It's it's an unlikely American story, I can tell you, um, and and it has to do with a, a kind of genius that maybe maybe is manifested though in that ten carl. Or I fished I fished with him here, and he just fished ten carl, and the one fly. <laughs> did did he kill and, it or? Oh, he killed him. Uh, but there were bit there were bigger fish that could be could be accessed, you know, with a with a standard four weight and all. And those didn't bother him. It didn't bother him that he wasn't reaching those fish, which I think is pretty interesting. Was it the? It wasn't the same creek we fished then. No, it wasn't. This was on a river, but okay. it was in at the edge of the wilderness, and we were there was it was good fishing. Um, but he and and then he showed me how to use that tin caro, and I broke the first tin caro I ever picked up. I mean, I I'm like a an an ape with a goblin. <laughs> You know, uh, and he showed me how to use that thing, and I get it. And also for backpack fishing, where it you know it te- it te- telescopes down, like like it would be an incredible thing to have in your pack. However, it was it was too simple for yeah. me. <laughs> well, we did we did a caribou hunt. We did a caribou hunt this year, and if there was one thing I really wanted to put in the pack, was mm-hmm. a tinkara rod. Hindsight being yeah. 2020, because we had a, a beautiful little uh, grayling stream right yeah. next to us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Hal, I kind of I had another question I wanted to ask you. Uh, I'm not sure how much time you got left, but uh, um, just kind of switch gears here. Um, what made you get into writing? What was your path uh, way to becoming a writer and author? Uh, read. Reading. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh I was raised in a house with a lot of books and um I I think in the end I wanted to write what I wanted to read but um I was so I, I it's that's a great question because I don't know what brings a bug into a person but I think it was reading and I some of my best memories and earliest memories are reading books and being transported um, a lot of, I mean, there's no, I, I went to the Amazon when I was 18, partially because I'd read Peter Mathieson's book at Play in the Fields of the Lord. Okay. And I figured there was a lot of, and that's a very, uh, I was really young when I read that and there's a lot of, uh, men and women and 
naked folks in jungle rivers. And I was like, you know what? I can make the Amazon. That might be the spot to go. (laughs) (laughs) uh, um, Now now you're close. What's that? Said so now you're close to the Amazon. You settled down. Yeah, close. for sure. Yeah, but I, uh, uh, I, I was fascinated with. Uh, I, I started writing fiction, and I actually published some. Um, but it took me too long. I, I and I, I went back into working and stuff. And one of the things that got me into journalism was I was thin in timber, and had a pretty terrible season where I was making like less than a hundred dollars a day. Sometimes making fifty bucks a day. You know. And I wrote a story for, um, I think, High Country News. And I got like 650 bucks. And I was like, whoa. That's a step up. The person could. Yeah, yeah it's a step up. Um, so uh, low expectations kept me in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so while we're talking about that, I was looking around on your website and just on your bio there, you mentioned that you wrote a story about a uh, bear hunting gang. Could you go into that? <laughs> yeah, sure. That was a um, that was a story called Takedown uh, that was based out of Bakersfield, California. And these guys were hound hunters who had gone they'd gone rogue. Um, and they there was some question whether they had discovered the gallbladder trade or not. Mm. They couldn't quite catch them on that part. But that was definitely a part of it. Um, and uh, they were just kind of like, they were complete outlaws. And it was fun. It was a fun story to do. Cause I, I, I didn't, it wasn't very objective. I didn't, I wasn't on the side of the bear poachers. Um, it was, I rode with the game wardens. Okay. And um, we, we had, it was, it was, you know, it, it's interesting you picked up that story. Cause uh, I, I, I worked for Bugle Magazine, the Elk Foundation. Yep. yep. And I covered like elk restoration in Mexico and elk restoration in the Great Smoky Mountains and in Northeast Tennessee. And um, the the world that opened to me through journalism or, or that kind of writing, it was it was just so amazing. I mean, there was a while there where I was really just living the kind of life uh, and that I, I had always imagined. Yeah, it seems. And that big down story was part of it. Okay. That. Yeah, it's, it seems like you've covered just, I mean, just from your website that it seems like you've cr- covered the whole spectrum of, I mean, it sounds like you've done a lot of things, you know, crime stories that don't have anything to do with yep. hunting. Uh, is there a spot where people can find a lot of your articles? I know there are a few. There's a portfolio. Okay. Yeah, there. Okay. Um, and uh, I haven't updated that since I started on this big book project. Okay. Um. I've just been picked up some. I just did a truck gun story for Field and Stream. What's your favorite truck gun? Um, and so I'm still I'm still churning them out. I'm still writing some uh, and plan to do a lot more when this project is done. Um, but and I'm going. But yeah, that that website hellherring.com has got a lot of old lot, lots and lots of old stuff. Okay, including back to when I was publishing fiction. I think nice. Um, well, I think uh, anybody who's listening definitely has to go check that out because uh, this podcast just here has been fascinating. When does when are you thinking that your book's going to be coming out? I've got another year um, of traveling okay. on it. Okay. And then uh, hopefully I can get a little bit. I, I got a little bit of an extension because of the pandemic stuff. Um, 
but yeah, I've got another another year here, um, which is pretty scary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man, this is gonna be like a, a whole series of encyclopedias. That's I think that's what you're gonna have to publish. What I'm avoiding, um, have you ever read Shelby Foote's History of the Civil War? No, I have not. It it started out to be some kind of like like a book about the Civil War, and it it ended up this three volume like thousands of pages. Okay. And I'm not going to do that. Well, <laughs> I, I was going to say, I could do a whole podcast on the history of public lands here with you. Go back to the whole 80s, you know, Reagan era and stuff like that. Yeah. You should do one of those. You should, because you're the, you uh, kind of run the um, BHA podcast, Podcast and Blast, right? Yes. You ever done anything like that? Yeah. I never okay. have. And I, th- I think it'll be time. I, I'm, um, I'm working right now on that. I, I just did the planting job, so I've been gone for a month. But um, and and then we just did the elk hunting. Uh, so I'm back now doing this, and um, I'm coming out of the '80s and into the '90s. Um, my history. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I it is fascinating, Ron. I I I mean, I am not burned out at all on all of this couple of years worth of reading. Um, I mean, this the public lands is just such a unique thing that i just i can't leave it alone really as a topic yeah well i mean so many people take them for granted but like myself i had no idea the history of it and i think i'm gonna have to start doing some more research or just wait till your book comes out that's probably what i'll do (laughs) but uh (laughs) there's some great uh like like uh and some of the books, like Grinnell, I'm looking at John Talia Farrow's book, Grinnell, right now about George Bird Grinnell. Um, that's a really great book. Um, Natural Rivals by John Clayton, I'm looking at right now. Uh, Mark Kenton, uh, Mark Kenyon, you know, from Meat oh, yeah. Eater. Yep. Your book, That Wild Country, is really oh, I, good. Oh, I love that book. I just, yeah. I listened to the audio version of it, but yeah, it was, it was amazing. And yeah. I feel like it was very relevant for you know, the time that it came out with everybody, the pandemic was kind of starting to explore all the public lands and stuff like that. Um, yep. But yeah, well, yeah, he did a great job with that. He did it. He and, and he, he interweaves a lot of history in the chapter. Definitely. Yeah. Yellowstone yep. history. Yeah. Yep. All that good stuff. Um, well, shit. Tell Kevin, uh, tell Kevin, thanks for having me. Yeah, I will. I will for sure. And um, yeah, we'll have to do it again. <laughs>